The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by my friend, Aaron Lammer. Uh, he is from the Long Form Podcast, from Coin Talk Show, uh, and, of course, Exit Scam, which is a podcast about the downfall and uh, sub- eventual supposed death of Gerald Cotton. Um, it is an eight podcast series. If you search Exit Scam wherever you listen to podcasts, you can uh, get all caught up on the story of Gerald Cotton. I think you guys will really enjoy what Aaron has to say uh, about you know the whole story. And I, of course, was, was tuned in to every single episode. Um, if you want to support this show, you can subscribe on patreon.com slash TateCast for bonus episodes. You can leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's go ahead and get into the show. All right, everyone. Uh, welcoming in a return guest to the show, Aaron Lammer. Uh, you probably know him, hopefully, from Exit Scam, a podcast you can find on uh, on iTunes, on the new Odyssey app. If you're listening to this and you haven't heard the uh, the final episode of Exit Scam, you can listen to it on Odyssey. Uh, Aaron, also the host of my favorite podcast ever, Coin Talk Show with Jay Kang. But uh, I, I really wanted to have Aaron on the show because Exit Scam was so fucking good. And and I had known that Aaron was working on this for a while. Like he like the last time he was on the show a year ago, he had mentioned to me off air, like, oh yeah, we're we're working on this big project. So Aaron, first off, how does it feel to be done to have have released the finished product? It feels good. I mean, um I was working on this for a couple of years, but we actually only had like three or four out of the eight episodes done when we launched the show. So it's been like a real That's stressful done um but um i'm really happy with it the response has been incredible um and i'm excited for people to hear the ending i think the the last episode goes out uh next monday in in everywhere so um we'll see what people think uh it's weird it's an interesting thing like you've heard the ending of the show so you know that there's no like giant like spoiler reveal at the end of the show right Um, but when i went and looked at a lot of the kind of mystery shows that I really liked true crime mystery shows. A lot of them actually have a certain ambiguity in their resolution. So I was sort of buoyed by that early on. I was terrified that people were going to uh, murder me because uh, I did not solve the crime, but uh, it seems actually like um, this is kind of a common, common outcome in these kind of investigations. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look, if you look at most of the very big true crime podcasts, true crime documentaries, I, I would say it is more rare than common for these independent investigators who are, you know, not not police officers, not FBI members, you know, whoever. I would say it is more. I would say it is extremely rare for um, a solution to a crime happening. You know, the one, the the one that I remember, there actually being 
like uh, like a confession, like a, a solved crime is the jinx, um, the the HBO documentary. And that's the, the one I can really remember. But other than that, I can't think of that many. And I would argue with the jinx that everyone already knows that Robert Durst is a murderer. Right. It's more of a question in the show about whether he will get caught and when he confesses. So, you know, in this case, we legitimately didn't know what happened. And if someone had figured out what had happened, that would have just been news and you would have known about it before the end of the show. So it's a bit of a catch 22. There's no real way to keep news off the Internet. So in some ways, the most exciting mysteries are the ones that aren't solved where you can't Google ahead and find out what really happened. And I can tell people are Googling ahead because you can pe see people on Twitter being like, actually, blah, 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 like giving information from later episodes. Right. So I guess we, we should start here. There are probably I'm sure there are some people listening to this who have yet to make it to Exit Scam, yet to make it all the way through. So let's give people a brief synopsis. Well, actually, first off, how did you even come up with uh, with the idea of wanting to dig into the subject material? Because like I, I remember the coin talk episode where you guys were like, so, yeah, this guy from the biggest Canadian Bitcoin exchange apparently died in India. And I remember you guys kind of just being like, well, that's, that's weird. So how did it, how did it progress from there? Well, I mean, as you know, as someone who listened to coin talk, um, I'm kind of a connoisseur of the crypto scam and the right the crypto charlatan. And so during the, the time period that we were doing coin talk, which kind of coincided with the, the ICO era, um, these that guys, was the golden age of crypto scams. Yeah. I mean, look, it hasn't, it's still a good time for crypto scams, but um, that was the time period where like there was like a crazy story coming out almost every week. And so after like a year of kind of jaw dropping at all these stories, this was the one that really it's the king of all crypto exit scam. Yes. Uh, it just has these elements that go way beyond crypto. Uh, it's about a guy who may have faked his death. Um, it's not simply about someone getting hacked or, um, you know, succumbing to temptation when there's a bunch of money around. Um, Gerald Cotton, who's at the center of this story, was involved in a multi-year organized crime uh, to remove money from his own exchange. Uh, and then he died very suddenly under mysterious circumstances. So in some ways it was kind of a perfect storm of all of the craziest stuff that was going on in crypto um, with some non-crypto elements like the possibility that someone faked their death in India that I found really fascinating. I mean, I, I find the whole concept of people faking their death and the sort of ambiguity around um, whether you can ever really know for sure, really fascinating. Um, and there's a whole, there's a whole world of uh, death faking culture. Um, there's a whole world that Gerald Cotton was a part of before he even got involved in crypto of these high yield uh, investment programs, which um, were basically internet Ponzi schemes uh, and all this stuff predates Bitcoin. So there was just a lot of really interesting strands to this story, um, some of which we knew about when we started and some of which came out while we were midstream. 
the um the high yield investment ponzi scheme stuff like pre-bitcoin when he was a teenager i found that to be i mean incredibly captivating but then also uh what there was e gold was something that he was involved with which i had never even heard of which i i assume that a lot of the original bitcoin guys were you know at least aware of and were like it so it in a way, it was also like a little bit of a crypto history lesson of like, oh, why was Bitcoin even needed in the first place? What was what was, uh, you know, Satoshi and these guys thinking of like, what were they trying to replace? And like, clearly these uh, these this worthless e-gold that Gerald Cotton had had used to transact was like a big part of it. And apparently the FBI was very easily able to confiscate all of this e-gold in a way they have not been able to with Bitcoin. Yeah, when we talk about the censorship resistance of Bitcoin, which probably was not the best term to use for it, um, in the most zoomed out sense, that's really basically saying that if you create a digital currency that's owned by a centralized entity, a company is in some country, naturally at some point it will get shut down. And that's true if it's in the U.S., like Eagle's. Uh, it's true uh, with Eagle's successor, Liberty Reserve, which was based in Costa Rica. It's not protection enough to be in Costa Rica. The right. States um, has enough authority to be like, hey, cut it out with this Costa Rican digital currency. And in fact, did uh, I believe actually the I think the founder of Liberty Reserve is still in prison. Um, he was he fled and I think was caught in uh, Spain and extradited back to the U.S. Um, all of this is basically around the idea uh, that comes, I guess, kind of out of the, the cartel, um, you know, uh, kind of Colombian drug smuggling era, which is that the U.S. jurisdiction extends beyond the U.S. And if you do something like create a digital currency that's being used for money laundering purposes in the U.S., the American authorities will eventually go after you. So Satoshi would have known this. Um, yeah. He or she was coming up with Bitcoin, that this was kind of the single greatest vulnerability. And it's kind of the whole reason for decentralization. Decentralization now is sort of an ethos. It's... Um, something that people believe in as a direction of the world. But at the time Satoshi was thinking about decentralization, I think Satoshi, whoever he or she was, was thinking, well, this whole thing falls apart if the government shuts it down. So the first thing this has to do is work, even if a government wants to shut it down, which is ironic today where you hear a lot. Yeah, literally today. Yeah. And um, various other entities, no one can really ban bitcoin that's actually probably its single most interesting property is, is the fact uh that um it doesn't really matter if one country or three countries doesn't want bitcoin in their country you can ban your citizens from transacting in bitcoin but you can't really stop other people in other countries from mining uh bitcoin and keeping the network up so at the time bitcoin came out this didn't actually make in the show but it's it's fascinating for people who are interested in crypto history um, in a forum post satoshi discusses liberty reserve and discusses the wow. possibility of a liberty reserve bitcoin trading pair because you remember at the time you couldn't there was no easy way to buy bitcoin with dollars at the time liberty reserve could have potentially s solved 
a similar like tether kind of issue where you would have swapped um, Liberty Reserve for Bitcoin as a way to get fiat into the system. Now, Liberty Reserve got shut down, uh, you know, at 2013. So probably a year or two after Satoshi was writing this, few years after Satoshi was writing this. So that didn't happen. But it gives you an idea of what the landscape that Bitcoin emerged from was and the real issues that people were thinking about uh, in creating cryptocurrencies, which are not exactly the same issues as exist now. Um, right then, it was a very, very different landscape. These coins were also used like, you know, um, gambling, sports gambling, all, all of these types of transactions, uh, as well as money laundering, were basically what people were using digital currency for. So it had to work in a way that sort of subverted national authority because national authority was what the people who were telling you not to sports gamble were primarily interested or not to money launder or not to move currency across international borders. Um, there's a lot of echoes between those early digital currencies and today's crypto issues. All of which would have been very appealing to Gerald Cotton for all of the things that he was involved in. And, and if you think about it, it's like, you know, a very happy accident and then a very unfortunate accident in the end for Gerald Cotton because it took him to to India where he may or may not have died. I don't know. I, and we can talk more about that later. I, I'm still I'm still undecided on what I think happened to Gerald Cotton, but clearly he was an early adopter of Bitcoin, not because uh, he saw Satoshi's true vision and was like, you know, this is a world where we can move past government inflation and we can bank the unbanked. He he saw massive financial opportunity and he saw the ability to transact anonymously and in a decentralized way that really fascinated him, I think. Well, the two founders of Quadriga, um, Gerald Cotton and Michael Patron, had previously operated a Liberty Reserve exchange that was owned by Michael Patron. So at some point, Jerry and or Michael Patron, um, and, you know, I know more about sort of Jerry's history than Patron's, but at some point, Jerry went from running these high yield investment programs that use digital currency to becoming a digital currency exchanger, which gave him this real leg up when Bitcoin came on the scene. You know, in the first few years of Bitcoin, it wasn't like anyone had ex had experience running a Bitcoin exchange but he had experience running a digital currency exchange, which was an extremely bizarre and rare form of work history there. So when Bitcoin came on the scene, the guys who founded Quadriga um, were some of the only people who'd ever done this stuff before and dealt with the regulatory issues, the security issues, et cetera, uh, that go along with being a digital currency exchanger. And ironically, if you look at early interviews with them, sometimes Gerald will say something like, well, I've actually been involved in digital currency for over 10 years, and this is when Bitcoin is only five or six years old. He's actually being honest. He's talking right. yeah. about when he was a teenager, he was involved with sketchy shit, and that's how he knows a lot about digital currency. Which is, it's it's interesting that, because as time would progress, I would imagine he would regret saying those things. He would regret tying Gerald Cotton, CEO of Quadriga, to... Uh, what scepter was that was that his uh his name yeah. and and then and then patron even more specifically before i started listening to exit's game i had no idea like i i knew the 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 outlines of the quadriga thing that the money was gone that gerald cotton died in suspicious circumstances in india that hit that they looked for the keys that the customers were trying to get their their bitcoin back 
But the, I mean, Michael Patron is, he was probably even more of a shady character than Gerald Cotton in the end, which, and it's crazy because it doesn't seem like Patron ever faced any legal anything from the Quadriga case, unless I missed that. Well, I mean, Michael Patron had left Quadriga several years earlier. And, you know, while I'd like to conclude that everyone uh, is sketchy and, um, you know, uh, deserves to face consequences, I actually think in my research, I found that Michael Patron's departure from Quadriga, I think, was sincere. Like, I think he actually left the con- the company and most of the really sketchy stuff that happened at Quadriga did happen after he left. So it's a bizarre case of a guy with a um, tattered history um, as uh, uh, an exchange owner, but who actually left this exchange before it turned bad. He actually went on to start his own exchange called Taurus, which I think did not do very well and shut down pretty quickly. Um, but it was his departure, ironically, that that really opened Jerry up to um, starting to embezzle very he- heavily because um, that was the point where there was no one else watching. There was no other adult in the room who could um, blow the whistle or, or say, you know, knock it off with the uh, taking the customer money and putting it on other exchanges. Now, would that have happened if Michael Patron was still around? We we can't know. Um, but this is one of those cases where there's just so many fires that not all of the smoke um, necessarily is from the main fire. Um, you know, there was a lot of the people who were associated with Gerald had had weird histories that that made them look suspicious. In the end, I think Jerry was kind of the the king of them all. You know, he, he was the one who who went right. for the. Or, uh, and, and took the whole enterprise big time. I mean, and some of that is just based on timing. Also, at the time that Mike and Jerry were running Quadriga, it was kind of a small time exchange and Bitcoin volume was very low. They just weren't making very much money. They were making, you know, at one point right before they tried to go public, I think they had quarterly revenue of twenty two thousand dollars. Um, this isn't like even really enough money w- that it's worth stealing. Um, whereas by the time Jerry was running the exchange by himself, um, you know, there was hundreds of millions of dollars on the exchange. The, the scale of the whole thing, uh, really changed. And I think that's kind of emblematic of, of Bitcoin as a whole. It, it, it went through this metamorphosis from being kind of fringy to, to huge amounts of money. And, um, you know, that may have inspired some people to, uh, get a little looser with uh, where that money was stored and um, whether people would notice if they took some of it. Do you think when Jerry first got the idea of starting the exchange, he was like, this will be a good money-making opportunity. I can, this will be, you know, a legitimate business. I won't have to scam it. And he was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go straight, right? The con man, the con man who goes straight. And then he just got overwhelmed by how much money that was there and he was like well shit i could just take this and open these positions or do you think the idea of starting the exchange getting the the funds and then being able to take the positions with customer funds like what what do you do which do you think happened first well we know that liberty reserve was heavily used for money laundering we don't know details of Jerry and Mike's Liberty Reserve exchange, but we know from the federal indictment that the reason Liberty Reserve got shut down was for massive money laundering violations. And having an exchange 
is a really useful thing if you want to quietly move lots of money around and to hide transactions and to right. hide, um, money laundering activity. So my impression is it's unclear whether Jerry originally intended to start a bank and then later rob that bank. I think early on he saw more benefits in just having a bank that for a person who was in the business he was in, um, having a bunch, a big pool of money sloshing around was a great cover to move money around, hide money, hide transactions, do whatever forms of business he was doing. Um, as Quadriga got bigger, perhaps that calculus changed um, and it became more appealing to take money off of the exchange. I mean, we also know that Gerald was gambling, you know, he, he was taking yes. up really great, you know, large. I mean, look what the line between gambling and investing in crypto is always blurry, but he was, we know we can call it gambling because he was doing it with other people's money. He was taking money and putting it on other exchanges and taking margin positions on altcoins, which is, you know, about as volatile as it gets, right? You're taking an early volatile investment. <laughs> and turbocharging it with leverage. So it's possible that a lot of the theft that went on at Quadriga uh, was originally sort of fun gambling, and then he lost a lot of money, and he was trying to make back that money and kept gambling more and more money and eventually got totally wrecked. Um, you know, with a case like that, it's almost hard to discern what someone's intentions were. Um, were his intentions to steal or was stealing a way to facilitate some larger addiction, some larger pathology? That 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 I would leave to to a psychologist, I guess. Probably fair enough. Uh, another another wild thing about this case that you, you realize that had Gerald Cotton not died or not uh, faked his death or not disappeared in India, he actually would be an insanely rich person. Like if, if anyone has access to those wallets, because he, through his various connections, I mean, a gigantic reveal again, that I was not expecting was he shared an office space with Vitalik that he knew Vitalik, that he was there when Ethereum was being created, when the, the genesis of the Ethereum protocol was happening. And he was one of the OG pre-mining investors right when when ethereum was just a twinkle in vitalik's eye he was giving vitalik money to own ethereum tokens in the future and that those those tokens as best i can tell from your reporting still exist and are still probably in a, a paper wallet somewhere that that gerald cotton had written down because he was a big uh, proponent of paper wallets probably because he uh, he understood what was at stake and did not want anyone uh, at any point able to access his token. So, I mean, there are, I mean, who knows how much he actually had, but certainly hundreds of millions of dollars of Ethereum are sitting somewhere in a paper wallet that Gerald Cotton is the only one who knows how to access. I mean, we don't know for sure, right? Like we could later find out that he bought Ethereum at the pre-sale during which a lot of people bought. Like if you were in yeah. the Canadian crypto scene in Toronto, you probably bought pre-sale Ethereum. It was like a nice thing to do. Someone described it to me as like, it would have been kind of a dick move not to buy into the Ethereum pre-sale if you happened to be working out of the decentral Toronto office. Uh, it would, you know, it's like, uh, 
your buddy's band, right? Um, but um, here are some things we do know. There was never an Ethereum presale wallet that uploaded its money onto Quadriga and sold it that looks like Gerald's wallet. So if he did sell it, it would have been over the counter or on a different exchange. Different exchange. And we also know that Gerald wasn't hard up for money during these years. So it doesn't seem like he would have had to sell any of those coins unless he wanted to. If he did have the pre-sale coins, we estimate that they would have been worth about $50 million at the time he died, which is relative to, um, you know, a, a, an Ethereum price of between one and $200, which means uh, it should be 10 to 20 X higher now, depending on how far Ethereum has crashed in the last, in the last 10 minutes. Not looking. Um, one of the hot rail challenges of doing this show was anytime you say a figure, it would be like, Oh crap. Now we have to change this. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's wrong now. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of these figures are, are pretty loose, but yeah, I mean, they, it's interesting. Almost, there's a lot of people who were early in crypto who stole and did crazy cons. The ironic part is that a lot of those people lost everything when they could have just been rich by just holding Bitcoin or holding Ethereum and not doing anything, not to mention running an exchange, which also could have been lucrative. So I think when you look a lot of a lot of this behavior, it says less about like a desire for money and more about, you know, the kinds of people who were attracted to crypto, who were kind of gamblers and risk takers. And in Jerry's case, um, yeah, he could be rich beyond belief right now. And he could have been rich beyond belief without committing any crimes. So looking at his crimes through that lens, um, I wonder, you know, what was going on in his head at, at, at various points in time. But then again, that was the character that led him to get involved in crypto in the first place. It's what led him to digital currency. So there's a chicken and egg with a lot of this stuff. I think a lot of people in crypto kind of want to portray it as, oh, well, there were a few bad apples, but most, most of us are just here for the technology. And my argument would be that those are not two distinct camps of people. Um, and unless you have access to someone's diary or are deep inside their head, it's pretty hard to know which one any given person was. I think most people would have said Gerald, Gerald was in the in it for the technology, doing it for the right reasons camp. That's what most people said. People didn't suspect that he was a con man. Uh, people thought he was really into Bitcoin and Ethereum. And and I actually think that was true. I, I don't think that was all some ruse. I actually think he really did believe in, in Ethereum. He believed in Ethereum so much that he bet a huge amount of money that belonged to other people in a Ethereum long Bitcoin short position that lost over a hundred million dollars. He really believed in Ethereum. Yeah, he was a, he was a true believer. And, and, and he was a true believer, but he didn't have enough foresight to realize that he could accomplish, like, you know, that all of these goals could have been accomplished via, you know, some simple, some simple buying and holding. But I, and, you know, I mean, the, the explosion that has happened with Ethereum over the last six months, I mean, even, even after literally like 60% drops off the highs, it is higher than it would have ever been when Gerald Cotton was alive to, to maintain it. And, you know, I mean, expecting that much foresight from him. Uh, the the most interesting character of the episodes of Exit Scam to me had to have been the private detective, right? That guy, that guy 
was so fascinating. He was like, you know, I've investigated thousands of these fake death cases. It's not that hard to do. It's pretty simple. Like it, it, it basically all seemed like the, the the detective guy basically made it sound like what Gerald Cotton would have done would not have even been extraordinarily difficult for someone of his means. I don't think it would, but I'll put like a slight asterisk on that, which is to say a lot of people fake their death. It's not that hard. It's not that expensive. Those people are trying to fool an insurance, like a life insurance company. Okay. Is going to pay out a million bucks. And maybe that life insurance company is willing to send a private investigator like the private investigator who is on our show, uh, Stephen Rombaum, to go check it out. You know, it kind of depends on the size of the policy and how fishy it looks, basically. But those kinds of death faking are only meant to hold up to very light scrutiny, right? Okay. Like death certificate. The more scrutiny that's on it, the the less you would expect those techniques to hold up, right? The person who is selling you a fake death certificate for 500 bucks or the fake testimony of a doctor um, probably isn't expecting like an international like uh, journalism investigation. investigation. Now, that doesn't mean it wouldn't hold up during an uh, international journalism investigation. It just means that those are so rare that no one's planning for a bunch of reporters to try to discredit your story. People are basically planning for this to be checked out maybe by one insurance um, agent who just kind of says, all right, is the paperwork in order? You know, does this all look right? So it's a little bit tricky. On the other hand, if and when Gerald Cotton did fake his death, if it happened, he may not have been expecting there to be an international outcry either. He may have thought this would kind of just be accepted, you know? Um, so it's a little bit of uh, 4D chess when you start to sort of think through everyone's motivations and whether they knew. In the case of Gerald Cotton, I actually believe that if there wasn't this story about him losing his password and the password locking hundreds of millions of dollars up, this would have never become such a big case. And I don't think people mm. looked at it as closely. So he almost accidentally caused his own story to go viral and then the viral attention brought a lot of scrutiny on what really happened to him um that story just had a catchiness to it you know i have thought a lot about like why this story like spread so much and why people are so sort of obsessed with it and i think this idea of losing your password and having hundreds of millions of dollars locked up. It speaks a lot about cryptocurrency, but it also speaks to like really normal everyday human experiences. Like everyone has lost a password. Everyone has thought about what happens, you know, okay, well I could lose my Bitcoin password, but what about these guys who have a billion dollars? Can they lose their Bitcoin password? The answer is yes. It works the same way, no matter how much money you have locked up. Um, and it also speaks kind of to our total ignorance of how these crypto systems work. You know, most people are like, why would people trust some exchange that they don't even know the guy? And it's like, I don't know. Do you know the like the guys who run whatever altcoin exchange you were very first using? I didn't. I was using yeah, one sure. Topia in New Zealand and they uh, exit scammed on me and I lost money, you know, Um People are like, who would fall for this? And I'm like, me, I would fall for it. 
Well, yeah, because you, you just are not even, you're not even processing things on that level. You're like, whatever, you know, this seems legit. And you, you all also, there's just kind of that element of like human nature where a lot of the times, most of, most of us assume a vast majority of the time that we are not being scammed unless, you know, and, and it's kind of easier in like interpersonal conversations or whatever, you know, walking down the street, it's, it's easier to see uh, a scam arise in front of your face. It's like, and, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of us feel probably too safe online. Like we, we just are, and, and we're all sort of used to like, oh, all these places have our data. All these places have our credit card numbers and our social security numbers. And like, we've all just become very used to that living in this day and age. And so it's like, you, you just are under the assumption that you are not being scammed. And I assume very few people, um, like, I mean, even, like uh, getting on Coinbase and stuff like no one, no one thinks twice about Coinbase, even though Coinbase has their own motivations and their own incentives. Like uh, Brian Armstrong has like, he's a, an Ethereum guy. He, he, he wants Ethereum to take over. And what there was that crazy Coinbase story. I, I always forget the specifics of it. You guys did a coin talk show episode about it. Like them uh, cooperating with some like crazy, uh, like foreign nationals group or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. You'd probably have a better memory of it than I would. Well, I actually don't even remember exactly which story you're talking about, but there's been a lot of Coinbase scandals and I'll bring up an interesting thing that, that came up in sort of my research, which was, you know, people said, how could this happen? Someone should have stopped, stopped this guy, right? Were there warning signs? And if you go back over the, the last year before Quadriga shuts down, in the Quadriga Reddit, you'll find a bunch of people saying, I tried to withdraw and it never showed up. Or mm -hmm. they said that, that that a withdrawal had been processed, but I never received it. All of these red flags that would have told you, this is a fractional reserve. These people don't have as much money as they're supposed to. And at certain times, they're delaying withdrawals uh, to probably, now we know, get more deposits to pay them out with, right? Classic uh, Ponzi-nomics. Yes. Um, so you're like, well, why didn't someone raise the red flag? Well, if you go and look at Coinbase's subreddit during the same period, there's also a bunch of people complaining about slow withdrawals and how they didn't get their money. So a lot of the things that looked suspicious about Quadriga really were true of many, many exchanges at the same period of time. And therefore, it was hard to to sort out, you know, what's incompetence and what is evidence of fraud, what's scaling issues versus actual like fraudish uh, behavior, you know, um, in the. Yeah, I, I just went through this with Top Shot. I just I just went through this. I mean, I've got the whole the whole crypto community just went through this with them and the people calling scam, I think, pro are if I had to put it. I would say it's like 98% top shot is completely legitimate and that they never actually had any issues in terms of liquidity. They just weren't, they were not equipped to scale how fast they were, but that doesn't mean I didn't think about it. Or that doesn't mean that people, even people who said this is a scam, even if you are 98% to be wrong, it doesn't even mean that you were wrong to voice those concerns because of all the crap that has happened in the crypto space. Absolutely. I mean, you know, most crypto exchanges, I think, fail for legitimate, like human error reasons. And then hidden amongst them 
are Gerald Cotton types, where it looks like maybe these people are in over their head, but actually something quite different is happening uh, in the background. And for me, this is kind of why I've gotten more interested in the world of Dexas. Um, you know, when you look, I think this is something we discussed on Coin Talk. When you look at the vulnerabilities in the crypto ecosystem, I think centralized exchanges are the biggest vulnerability. It's no accident. It's exactly what we were talking about when we were talking about Liberty Reserve. Any form of centralization is something that either can get shut down or it's subject to human weakness and a human lack of transparency. I feel much more comfortable trading on Uniswap, say, where I basically am just interacting with a bunch of smart contracts than I am dealing with a centralized exchange where I send them crypto and then they just you know change the number in the back end about how much I have. That's not sitting in some specific wallet. It's just sitting in their hot wallet or their cold storage wallet, and I can't see it. And therefore, if there was another quadriga happening there, I wouldn't know until after it happened. And they don't, I mean, as far as I can tell, Coinbase, Gemini, whatever your, your uh, exchange of choice is, they don't have to denominate your holdings in what you're holding, right? So like, let's say, okay, I have four Bitcoin on Coinbase. But as long as they have that amount in tether, I think they feel good. Like I feel like they that like that is their segregated, you know, company funds versus user funds. Um, and they they send, you know, what and that's why it takes days sometimes for your Coinbase transactions to settle. Because if you are like if whatever you were leaving on Coinbase, they have in Tether, but they don't necessarily have it in Ethereum and Bitcoin. And and we actually already kind of saw this be a problem. It's not a problem now because there's not a big buying frenzy for Bitcoin, but I, I think it, about two or three months ago, there were exchanges that were halting um, withdrawals in Bitcoin and Ethereum because they did not have enough Bitcoin and Ethereum on hand to do for people's withdrawals. So like this is already some, even in even in 2021 with a, you know, a, a new world of crypto with all these institutional money, it is, it's still like a real thing to, that we can't really trust exchanges. Yeah, I mean, ironically, the the nail in the Quadriga coffin was the crash, particularly the Ethereum crash. And Gerald Cotton had taken up this Ethereum position, which is to say the composition of the assets on the exchange were tilted towards Ethereum. Um, more Ethereum than they should have, less Bitcoin than they should have. So it crashes and you go, Okay, well, they got a bunch of Ethereum. Well, now people are trying to make withdrawals in Canadian dollars. He has to cash out this rock bottom Ethereum in order to pay out these uh, withdrawals. That was really the biggest loss in the entire thing. So this idea of, well, we've got enough assets, they're just denominated differently. You can see in the Quadriga example how that can be catastrophic. And, and I don't mean to be like a tether fodder, but like... Tether has a lot of these characteristics, right? Tether is saying we've got a bunch of assets, but we can't really tell you what they are. Some of them are commercial paper. Um, these are all things that are fluctuating relative to each other. Um, these are all things that could be uh, subject to crazy price action during a bull or bear market um, as people flood money in or out of crypto. So, it's not like I have some conspiracy theory about Tether or that I think there's some conspiracy about the centralized exchanges. It's more that I think 
even operating the way they're supposed to operate seems pretty hazardous uh, on certain levels. And certainly compared to, you know, something like uh, a DEX, I just don't really see what the point is anymore. Like, I don't know why we would do this. this it seems like an archaic way to do business uh, now that, uh, you know, Ethereum world is upon us uh, and we can do it all through smart contracts that people don't control uh, with clicking. The well, bell. because inertia is the most powerful force in the world. Like it's the way people have, it's the way, it's the way I got onboarded to buying crypto. Actually, I think maybe there was like some shapeshift.io in, in the early days. But yeah, I mean, that's the way most people have come to, to interact with crypto. Uh, okay, so Jerry's wife, Jen, what is the what is the vibe you got from her? Because she she enters into the story relatively late compared to a lot of the other characters. She meets Jerry after a lot of all these other things have begun. You know, do you feel like what just what was the general vibe you got researching her? Well, the general vibe I got was that I know very little about her and I still yeah. know about her. Um, I tried to take an open mind about her, right? Jerry, I know, was involved in Ponzi schemes since he was 15 years old. On some level, that tells me a lot about who he was. And maybe that he didn't deserve the benefit of the doubt when he disappeared with over $200 million because he had disappeared with money before under similar circumstances. I didn't find out anything like that about his wife. There's a lot of rumors going around the Internet about her. I didn't find most of those rumors to be true. I would say what I kind of found about her was that at least when she met Jerry, she was a pretty normal person. Yeah. So whatever she got involved in with Jerry, I believe was something that Jerry spearheaded. Um, and, you know, whether you want to be angry at her or not for marrying a con man, um, I don't necessarily think that there's a ton of evidence that she was actively involved um, in, in making any money disappear. Um, so I tried to work with what we did know about her and give her a fair shake because, you know, unlike Jerry, who I don't think really deserves the presumption of innocence anymore after I've seen some of the things he did in his life, um, for her, it's it's a more muddled situation in, in which I do think it's possible that she is telling the truth that she really had no idea what he was up to. So, okay. What did you make of the argument between Jerry's parents and her? Because it was, uh, it was, they, they come back from India, they have the funeral and uh, it was, it was, it became clear that some sort of schism happens between Jerry's family and Jen um, and, you know, who knows, right? Who knows what that can, who knows what that's about? I, I don't know what that argument was about. Um, I've heard different things from different people. So I was very careful in the show to sort of avoid conjecture about things like this. I guess I'll say this, that if you play out the different scenarios, that argument looks very different. If you sure. believe Gerald Cotton faked his death and that his wife was in on it, then you're in a very bizarre uh, Kafka-esque situation in which uh, Jerry's parents think that he has really died and his wife knows that he's still alive, yet is supposed to perform a mourning um, 
period, uh, you know, for the benefit of everyone else to convince people that he's not alive, uh, that he's not alive. Um, that I could see how that that could lead to some some conflict or some strange feelings. Um, on the other hand, if you believe that Jerry really is dead, um, then after just a few months of marriage, his wife at, at that point was set to inherit, you know, uh, between 15 and $20 million worth of stuff and his parents weren't going to get anything. That's another reason that I could see people, um, getting into some sort of a form of dispute. So I don't know what that actually was about. I only sort of know that, that people say that, uh, this story was was relayed to them uh, about about a fight uh, at the after. It wasn't at the funeral itself. It was um, the evening of the funeral. Um, but like a lot of those things, you know, a lot of these are still mysteries to me because I've never gotten to talk to Jen and I've never gotten to talk to Jerry's parents. And so we tried to focus as much as possible on things that you know, we could actually talk to people who were there who had real firsthand knowledge uh, of what was going on. And um, certain people, I think, were more talkative than other people. Um, and the people who were less talkative, uh, unfortunately, will probably keep some of these mysteries mysteries. Or maybe some of these mysteries will fade o over the next uh, couple years. But, you know, from for Jen, I think she ended up having almost all of that stuff seized. So a lot of these things that happened in the first few months after Jerry died ended up being kind of moot. She didn't end up rich. She ended up with nothing, you know? Some of the narratives about what was really going on sort of conflict with what really happened. Like, Jen right. did not profiteer off of Jerry's death. In fact, she, she lost a lot as, as a result of it. Um, not all of these outcomes were sort of preordained. So one of the other very odd circumstances was Jerry basically communicating via Skype to what, I mean, this guy was like kind of the second in charge of Quadrigo, kind of like the, the lead dev and basically, you know, not, not knowing this person that well on an interpersonal level and basically being like, all right, I'm i uh, I'm leaving Quadriga to you. That was, that was another one of the giant, like, what the fuck is this guy doing things? Well, so there's actually, I think you're conflating two different things. So at the That's time, possible. there was actually two main people who, who did work on Quadriga. There was the lead developers, a guy named Alex Hainan, and there was the head of customer service, who's a guy named Aaron Matthews. And Jerry had said that he wanted to retire and leave Aaron Matthews in charge of the company. And my fundamental belief, I don't have proof of this, is that whether he's alive or dead, um, this was some plan on Jerry's part to basically take off and let someone else be holding the bag when it was revealed that that Quadriga did not have nearly as much money as it as it was supposed to. And I know that um, you know Aaron felt probably betrayed also once he found out that you know the the, the cushy job he had been offered while Jerry he had thought yeah. Turned out to be, um, you know, framing is the wrong word, but very easily you can imagine how he might have been held responsible for this missing money if he ended up becoming the CEO of the company. And in fact, 
after Jerry died, there was an attempt to name Aaron the interim CEO of the company. And at that point, he said, no, 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 I do not. I'm out. I do not want to become the CEO of this company. So um, certainly it looks like there were plans afoot to to have Jerry exit being the, the CEO of the company um, probably in the within a few months actually after he died and, and and some of that stuff you know it reads both ways on one level that sounds like an an exit scam on another level i know that quadriga was planning a big redesign right when he died in some ways that sounds like someone who expects the company to be up for a while so i don't necessarily think the plan was for the company to instantly collapse uh, it seems more like there was a plan for the, the company to keep going and, and try to make a go of it for a while. Although, at least in my opinion, the hole that they were in financially would have made it very, very difficult for Quadriga to ever become uh, legitimate and whole again. They would have had to collect a lot of money in fees uh, to get out of that debt. So at the at the end of the day, what does Aaron Lammer think happened? You You probably know the most about this case outside of uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And maybe they even know less. Because uh, in, the, in the final episode, you kind of talk about like, well, either, either they know a ton and they're not saying or they're not interested because, you know, there were, uh, what, what was the name of, of the Quadriga guy who had done a bunch of independent investigation? QCXN. QCXN, yeah. So he had reached out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which I'm just saying that out loud because it's so funny that they still call themselves that. Um, and basically he said I like they hadn't gotten back to him, that he sent them all this data, all this information they hadn't gotten back, which to me either suggests their investigation is still ongoing and they think he is alive and they don't want anything leaking out of their office or they just don't care and they they have moved on. Um, but yeah, what, what do you what does Aaron Lammer think happened to Gerald Cotton? So we we set out trying to solve two mysteries, which is what really happened to Jerry and where's the missing money. And I think we solved the missing money uh, uh, component. I feel comfortable now saying that um, outside of that personal investment nest egg that we talked about, um, I feel comfortable saying I think most of the money's been accounted for now and we now know basically why there wasn't any money. And the reason that there wasn't any money is because uh, Gerald had either lost or spent most of it, mostly like lost um, through taking up crypto positions. That's where most of the money went early on. It looked like, Oh, he's got been taking private jets. And it's like, even when you added that all up, it was like a couple million dollars on like luxury stuff. Most of the money was lost to gambling to uh, losing positions. Yeah. In terms of what happened to Gerald Cotton, you know, it's difficult to prove a negative, right? And I don't think we definitively proved that he's alive. And I don't think we definitively proved that he's dead. Um, in order to prove either of those things, particularly the, the, the proof that he's dead, I think you would need power of law enforcement and that's not something we have. Um, and you correctly alluded to the fact that it's possible that law enforcement already has solved this mystery and they're under absolutely no obligation to let me or anyone else know that they have, they may have some data that I don't have that, that would solve this mystery quite simply. In fact, at certain times they've acted as if they do have 
some data. Um, I've heard consistent. Yeah. They are confident that Gerald Cotton is really dead. I don't want to be swayed by them saying that without them showing me why they think that. Um, simultaneously, I don't want to be swayed by people online who are 100% sure he faked his death and won't really hear otherwise. For me, it remains an open question. And I would say I am not confident uh, in either explanation. In fact, I find gaping, gaping holes in, in both theories if, I, if I'm critical uh, about it. And so I would say that, you know, at different points in the investigation, I was very convinced of both scenarios. And I end the podcast in a pretty similar uh, state of mind. I think that Occam's razor is that it's more likely that that he is is not still alive. Um, the long I think I agree with that. I think I think the simplest explanation is that he's actually dead, but there's just so much other nebulous stuff that would indicate otherwise. Most most of what would indicate to you that he would still be alive would be everything he did in his life up until the point to where he met Jen. Like basically it just seemed he was angle shooting everything. The the great, I mean, the best anecdote from all eight episodes was that he was mistakenly emailed a list of people for uh, what uh, storage units in, in uh, Toronto. And he was like, okay, what do I do with this? How can I, how can I monetize accidentally getting all of these emails? Yeah. I mean, I've talked to people who are, I've talked to someone who is a former scammer, actually, uh, who went who who went to jail and, and broke out of prison. He's in one of the episodes, a guy named Brett. He's kind of like a speaker about fraud now. He, he's gone straight. But when I talk to him, he really describes the addiction to scamming, the addiction to ripping people off. It's not simply a I want money and you've got money. It becomes a pursuit and a lifestyle um, unto itself. And. and I think that anecdote you just gave about him like trying to use this email list from his storage locker place is kind of emblematic of that. He sort of saw everything in the world from the perspective of how, how can I scam? How can I get over on people? Um, so certainly someone with that, you know, attitude could be the kind of person who, who could try to fake their death, but also could be the kind of person who went too hard and put themselves in a lot of danger unnecessarily as we discuss, as we discussed. And so therefore I don't necessarily, some people will say, well, what was his plan? He had to exit scam because otherwise he was going to get caught. And one thing I sort of learned from talking to like real life pro scammers is people just don't think about the consequence. There's not necessarily an escape. Right. Like people actually put themselves into a corner and have to improvise or have to go to jail or have to get caught um, simply because of their addiction to it. It's not like a calculated thing like, oh, I want to do this and I want to get away with it. It's much more compulsive uh, and improvisatory. And, and the thing you learn from really pro scammers also is that these guys aren't like super technical hackers. A lot of what they do is called social engineering. It's um, scamming people um, through old school con man techniques, through through convincing people that you're not doing something nefarious uh, while you are. And so 
in some ways, I feel like the idea that Jerry's still alive and he exit scammed is more of a plan than I, I'm quite sure he actually had. I think there's a possibility that he had just scammed a lot of money and had no plan um, or a very thin plan and was kind of improvising. Because you have to remember that while Ethereum was high, you know, only a year before his death, he may have been a billionaire at that point. Yeah, the that's true. Problems that he always had. At one point, it looked like everything was gravy, um, and I think it's that that's sort of a difficult thing for people outside crypto to realize is that one of the plans may have just been, well, I'll take a big position with all the money, and then I'll be right, and Ethereum will go up. And I'll make a bunch of money and everyone will be made whole. Everyone will win. And ironically, with the way Ethereum has appreciated in the last year, he was actually right. Would have been right. But he would not have been able to stay liquid for long enough to be right. And that's kind of where the fractional reserve ponzinomics kind of bite you in the ass, right? When you're doing a bunch of nefarious stuff, um, you know, a personal large Ethereum position he could have held out on for a period of years till Ethereum recovered. He couldn't have done that with his exchange because he's got all these other people trying to withdraw and you got to pay them your money or you're going to get uh, exposed. So this house of cards had like a lot of different layers to it. And in no way have I been able to figure out some master plan. Um, I, I don't think this was like a super genius villain. It seems more like just a guy who'd been doing this since he was 15, kind of figuring out how to get out of every... Um, pickle he found himself in through lying did anyone ever float to you the idea that he was murdered that he was that he was poisoned that that you know crohn's disease wouldn't act this fast that you know this was indicative of something else i mean that's a theory that a lot of people have but mostly people who are less knowledgeable about the case if that's the case yeah I mean, look i don't rule out anything that could have happened if someone did that, they were brilliant because they were able to poison him in such a way that it more or less resembled a natural Crohn's death. Um, not impossible, but difficult. You know, difficult to, to do something that fault fools a doctor in that way. On the other hand, I can't say it's impossible that such a thing happened because there wasn't an autopsy to, to rule out any you know medical eventuality or really to give any medical explanation is really kind of to guess and that is something that the doctor who saw him said was you know these are our best guesses based on what we observed while he was still alive but there wasn't an autopsy so we can't definitively know how or why he died yeah um all right we'll tell people they should listen to exit scam where to find it and uh you know all the other stuff you you're uh, you're putting out so exit scam is at exitscam.show, or you can just um, uh, uh, look at it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts under exit scam. Uh, if you're if you're almost at the end, the last episode is up now on Odyssey. You can you can cut ahead a week. Otherwise, uh, it'll be out on Monday. So really, if you haven't listened to the show, it's a great time to start binging it now. You could really uh, hit it hit it at exactly the right moment. Um, I also host the long form podcast. If you're interested in interviews with journalists at some point, maybe I'll do another coin talk. I gotta, I gotta talk to Jay Kang about yeah, that. Get Jay Kang going. Uh, I he, he's got a book coming out, but I think, I think he's pretty much done with most of the writing of the book. So uh, maybe, maybe we'll see some uh, Kang in the house soon. 
Well, I mean, we need it. Like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the most interesting they've been in, in years. Like we have the, the combination of a fully actualized Decentraland happening, unlimited numbers of things you can gamble on, massive price dips, massive price jumps, federal regulation. Like this is this is the most interesting crypto has been since Libra, I think. I agree. And, you know, we usually have the most fun during crashes. So um, this, I got to get something that'll uh, cheer me up since uh, otherwise this crash has been uh, pretty brutal, pretty brutal from the top to here. Yeah, it's uh, look, we're all we're all just doing our best to uh, to try and not check the price too much per day. But it's uh, it's not been great. Um, everyone follow Aaron on Twitter. Please listen. Exit Scam. Uh, amazing podcast. Uh, and then whenever he and Jay do coin talk show, make sure to really tell Jay how much you like it. Really appeal to Jay's ego because that's how we're uh, that's how we're gonna get more of them. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for this interview. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today. With each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.